Hello and welcome to another edition of Bridging the Gap. Hopefully you and yours are doing well, staying healthy and enjoying every second of the day that you can together and serving clients. Again, we are so excited to have you join us here on Bridging the Gap, a podcast where we are looking to help financial advisors and the entire advisory industry bridge the gap between where the industry is today and where our industry will be in the future. We want to ensure that we as an industry stay up with the trends, stay up with the innovation, and ultimately evolve our business to ensure the best experience for our clients in the years to come. I started bridging the gap out of my wanting to take my experiences of sitting in the seat serving families and also helping to build a technology company serving the wealth managers and bring them together. And I wanted to create a voice, a common voice amongst the community of advisors that can strive to create a positive future change and continued progression, always with the advisor and the client relationship front and center. There's no better way in my mind of creating a community of advisors and industry professionals and sharing thoughts, views, and ideas than to talk about different topics that impact our industry. That's why we talk about everything within the wealth management industry, but we bring in people from outside the industry, different ideas and different trends to help us spur innovative ideas and thoughts and concepts of ways that we may not have thought about before and different ways of better serving our clients and building meaningfulness and uh, enthusiasm within our company going forward. So please be sure if you like the podcast, go and follow us, like us, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast with others in your firm, others in the industry that you know, because the best way to build a thriving community is have differing views and opinions. And I want people to listen and maybe they have differing thoughts, share those thoughts. Let's have a conversation. Let's not be shy from creating a differing viewpoints because that's how we're going to become better for both our firms and better for our clients is by creating a community where we can talk about things openly and be okay being different in our opinions going forward because that's how we're better. Maybe you agree with some of the things I say. Maybe you don't agree with some of the things I say. That's okay. Let me know on both sides so we can have a conversation because we're always looking to get better. So getting into today's podcast, I'm really, really excited to have Dave Cafaro on the podcast today. He just released a new book that you can go find on Amazon called Leading from Zero. And it's all about helping to create relevance in your firm. It was an amazing conversation that Dave and I had. Dave is extremely bright. He has a background in consulting. He understands how to build and grow firms and create a relevant firm. And what we talked about was how relevance, you have to constantly recreate it. Same as what we have to do as in the industry, have to continuously focus on evolving and building our relationships with our clients. It's a constant iteration to build relevance and sustain it going forward. It was really interesting there, talking about meaningfulness, both for your employees and for your clients, talking about what you need to focus on on M&A, why M&A works, why it doesn't. And then how you can also use new clients and new employees to look inside your firm and say where you can evolve and learn. Because once people are with you, either working with you as an employee or as a client, they tend to view you a little bit different. But the new perspective of how they viewed you coming in can help you as a firm continue to grow. And there was a great story about Dave and some birds chirping that really resonated with me in there. But enough about me. Please listen in. Take a few things away from Dave, I know you will, that can help your firm become more relevant and sustain relevance going forward. So enough of me. Let's turn it over to the podcast of me and Dave. This is Bridging the Gap. 
with your host, Matt Reiner. Dave, it's so good to have you on Bridging the Gap. Thank you for taking some time to uh, chat with us. I'm really excited about this conversation. It's just going to be some awesome content. And I think that the value you're going to be able to bring to RIAs is going to be great. So, so welcome to Bridging the Gap. Hey, I'm really excited to be with you, Matt. And I love the whole focus of this podcast. I love the idea of bridging the gap. How do we get from where we are to where we're going? So it's a pleasure to be with you. And before we start recording, we were talking a little bit about, you know, you living out in Orange County. We're here in Atlanta and it, it is spring weather here. And I was giving you some grief because it, you, you said spring's around the corner and Orange County's always, I think, got spring weather. Um, and I think that there's something we can relate to because you say that y'all are, are weather wimps. We are this is too. True. We have a lot of we have a lot of <laughs> northerners that come down to, to Georgia and when it's like 55, we're freezing and they're like, this is amazing. I'm like, no, this is way too cold. Uh, for me. So how's Orange County these days? How are y'all doing over there? Well, we had like three hours of winter this week. So it rained (laughs) for three hours straight. There was Stormwatch 2021 on the news. People weren't quite sure what to do with it. We made it through and today it's up to 70 degrees. So we're sort of navigating this near crisis weather conditions, but it goes with the territory. That's amazing. It, you know, it, it reminds me of over here when we just get the anticipation of snow, uh, yeah. the whole city shuts down and it's uh, breaking news on every news station. So it's very similar. For y'all, it's rain. For us, it's just the anticipation of snow. Schools shut down, yeah. businesses shut down, everything. You know, you get the, the, two, the two salt trucks that we have here in Atlanta. Uh, you get them on the roads and then you get going. So I, I understand that. We'll get through this. But, yeah, we will. You will get through it. But that's really great to hear. And I know that you know I'm really excited to talk about your your new book that's out, and, and we're going to dive into that. But before we even talk about the new book, and I'm going to have the uh, the links to the book for everybody to buy as well. The Leading from Zero is the new book that just launched. But before that, I always want to give people a few minutes to talk about their background. And then go into my favorite question about their why. But let's first start with your background, right? How did you get to this point to where you're helping leaders and and especially maybe in the RA space, but just in general, to helping leaders be better in that standpoint? Well, that's that's been part of my mission when I was in a leadership role in a company as well. Part of my focus has always been how do I help people become more effective, more successful in leadership roles? My career has traversed both management consulting and wealth management. So right after graduate school, I spent time in consulting. And one of the things that was really appealing to me as I looked at financial services and how much change was going on there, and it became very intriguing because I love the whole dynamic of what was happening. And so I ended up going to work as a wealth advisor and then as a team leader, then as a regional manager and held a bunch of different leadership positions. I spent a number of years as the head of the investment management and trust division at Wells Fargo. And what I really loved about that job was I came in to kind of be a change agent there. The company went through a lot of changes. We did a bunch of acquisitions while I was there. And it was always about how do we become more relevant, more meaningful to our clients? So I really like that a lot, but I always wanted to go back to consulting. I love kind of what all is involved in getting to deal with a bunch of different organizations and the people and finding out what makes them tick and how I can help them become even better. And that's what I that's what I love about our conversations that we've had and just you know following you, you know, over the past few years as we when we were connected, you know, your background is so diverse and you bring just so much, you know, unique perspective to 
all leaders across the board. And I think that that's what is so engaging. I think is valuable here. And, you know, as we talk about you know, your background, I'm always interested, you know, Simon Sinek is someone that I follow a lot and I love his concepts, you know, start with why and the infinite game or some of his books, but you know, the start with the why concept, what is your why? I think it's such an interesting question. And I like to ask all my guests before we get into the meat of it, what is your why for what you do day in and day out? What's your deep down why? My deep down why is about being a beneficial presence. And that's true in my personal life. It's true in my business life. What I think of when I think about the clients that I work with, the question I always ask and kind of the litmus test is, how can I be a benefit to them? What can I contribute to them? Sometimes that contribution is asking good questions and they're answering the questions and coming to their own conclusions. Other times it's just trying to find, you know, new ideas, help them come to new ideas. But that's what helps me feel centered. It's what helps me challenge myself to sort of earn my keep every day. Yeah, I love that. And I think that it's such an interesting question. The Just the what is your why question is such an interesting one because, you know, yeah, we all are in the business because we want to help people and we want to you know provide for our family and we want to have a career. But really getting down to the deep part of it and what's always stuck with me about that question is, you know, what Apple and, and Simon Sinek uses the example of Apple in, in his many of his videos you know, they, they do build computers, but that's not their why. They want to change the world, right? And I think that's so interesting to see and hear everybody's whys. And I, I love I love yours. And, and I think that you start to see it in all of the work that you do, right? Your new book, Leading from Zero, is, you know, it's all about helping guide leaders in how, on how to gain and sustain relevance. And I think that that's such an interesting avenue and aspect to take a book and i think it's so needed you know from your what what really spurred you to believe that leaders needed some consulting and guidance on this concept of relevance right because you you think about consultants writing books it's always about how to be more efficient as a business how to you know build a better culture all that type of stuff you took an angle of relevance how to be a relevant leader in a relevant company what spurred you to write that so i've worked with a lot of leaders over time and there's always a focus on the bottom line, but what I've found is oftentimes it's the wrong bottom line. Now, I am a huge believer in measuring profits, measuring revenue, the economics of a business, but when it comes down to it, the most important bottom line I believe to measure is how relevant is an organization as a company to its employees and how relevant is it to its clients? And if you're not asking that question, you're sort of missing the true source of what creates revenue, right? One of my favorite Peter Drucker comments is the purpose of a business is to create a customer, create a client. And you start digging into that. And what he was saying is it's only when you become relevant, those are my words, not his, but that you have a client. And it's the same in this business, right? In the wealth management business, Investments, people can get anywhere. How does a firm create a client? You have to earn that relevance. And it's really important that you sort of know that there's a finite shelf life to relevance, right? And when I speak about relevance, I'm talking about pertinence. I'm talking about meaningfulness, importance in the life of your client, in the life of your employee. So my view is that leaders have to continually ask the question, how are we earning relevance with our employees, with our clients, with our other constituents every day? 
With relevance, you know, as I listen to you, it's really like you can never sit. You have to always continuously prove your relevance, right? You have to continuously prove your worth. And, you know, I think that that's something that, you know, resonates so much to me coming from the RIA space and the wealth management space is that, you know, what our value prop is to our clients is the relationship that we have. And once you take the relationship for granted is the time that the person starts looking for other relationships to go have, right? And so you have to constantly innovate on how to be uh, unique in your relationship. Investment management is commoditized. You know, that is just, that's the way it is now. And so you have to find different ways to add value and to deepen that relationship. And everybody says they're white glove, but not everybody truly is white glove. And so, you know, from your standpoint, and that's one of the reasons I think that, you know, because the human is so needed in the RA space, that's why I think that the wealth management industry is never going to lose the human advisor. But from your perspective, you know, based on your research that you've done for this book and, and, this, and the, the, the lessons you've learned from your consulting experiences, what can wealth managers do to, to continue to stay relevant, right? Like how can they take some of this information and this insight and implement it into their business? You know, if they're just an individual advisor or even if they're a leader of an RIA firm, right? How can they take this and, and implement it? Well, one of the first things I think that matters is to recognize that relevance does have a shelf life. So it's kind of like the, what have you done for me lately? What happened yesterday was relevant yesterday. What does it mean today and tomorrow? Clients' lives are changing. They're always dynamic. They're always moving. Think about the typical RIA client, right? People get married. They have children. They buy companies. They sell companies. People pass away. There's this dynamic motion, this dynamic movement. And so I think an advisor has to always be asking themselves the question, what's going to be meaningful to my client tomorrow? As a leader of a firm, you have to ask the same question about your team members because team members have needs too. And it's so easy to overlook it and say, well, yeah, but they get paid, they get the benefits, whatever. That There's so much more to the equation than that, right? So understanding that there is a finite shelf life and asking what matters, what's going to matter tomorrow. So we're talking about investments in particular and investment performance is fleeting, right? So look at where we are right now. We're at a market that's frothy. It's at an all-time high. But what we know about markets is on average, there are corrections every 11 months. So right now, when most people open up their statement and they're feeling really good about things, (laughs) you know, it's easy to say, yeah, okay, everything's fine. What's it going to be like tomorrow or next week or whenever the next correction happens? And it feels really uncomfortable to pick up the phone and say, hey, how are you doing? Let's talk about where you're at. Let's talk about your portfolio and things like that. That's where we have to think about what is it going to take from their view, from the client's view, to earn that relevance. Similarly, if I'm leading the team, leading an organization, where are my team members? How are they going to, what are they going to expect of me? So I'm demonstrating meaningfulness to them as a leader when things are more challenging or if you're going through a merger or if you've been acquired or things like that. You know what I'm saying? I think that that's so spot on because, you know, you think about positively deviant leadership, right? How to be a positive leader. And that's some of the, you know, just 
buzzwords of leadership courses and MBA programs around, but being a positive leader is all about creating meaningfulness beyond just the day-to-day work, right? That's how you get people to be inspired. And, you know, one of the things that we did earlier on you know, in our firm, you know, it was a family, it was a small little shop that's now grown to be managing over three and a half billion and 50, 50 for, uh, team members. But it was, we started as a family and we continue to grow with that family mentality. But there was also this point of we had a strong understanding, going back to our question earlier, of a why. Why do we do what we do? And it was beyond you know doing investment management. It was to create happiness in retirement, right? And we were able to build everything that we do, whether it's a small tactical task by our administrator to a you know a large potential acquisition of a new advisory firm. It was all around that why. Are we going to be able to bring more happiness to retirement or make more retirees happy in retirement? And if we can, then how do we do that? Everything is driven by that. And there's now then this bond behind there. So there's a meaningfulness that goes beyond the day-to-day tactical that each of our employees do, which is really inspiring. And there's a huge power in that. And I think that, you know, doing it from the leadership side to the employees, that makes sense. But you have to have that why going from the advisor and each employee to the client. And they should be feeling the same why because they're going to be either attracted to you or they're not. And you're not for everybody. And so I think that there's like this, you can take those leadership lessons and apply them to as you being the leader, the advisor to your clients and make sure that everybody's aligned on what their, you know, the firm why is. And starting with that is a good place to start to get adoption and get, you know, buy-in from everybody from that standpoint. <laughs> But, you know, from, you know, as we think, as we think about that, and as I, as I go on that kind of that talking point, I think about what's going on in our industry today, right? We have a ton of M&A, M&A, merger and acquisitions. And talk about meaningfulness, right? That there's a ton of acquisitions happening. And, and I think that there's, you know, it's, it's just very frothy. You talk about the markets being frothy, the M&A market and the RA space is extremely frothy. It's a sexy thing to do. And we always hear about the headline transaction, but we don't really ever hear about what happens after the transaction that may be like a reality show coming down the pike you know what happened after the transaction but from your experience what tends to happen post-transaction and how can firms and i think i know where you're going to lean a little bit on this but how can firms both buyers and sellers learn from these experiences in your research from your book to make it a mutually beneficial transaction for all parties the owners, the employees, and the clients going through an M&A transaction. So, so I love the way you asked the question, Matt, because it has to be mutually beneficial. Unfortunately, the research on mergers can be somewhat discouraging. So there's a bunch of studies on this. Most of them show that 70 to 80% of mergers fail to achieve the stated objectives. 70 to 80% fail. So maybe the marriage wasn't a good cultural fit. Perhaps expectations weren't clearly defined in advance. You didn't know what you were getting into. A really common issue post-merger that I see is that both the team members, the employees, and the clients don't feel like they were getting what they thought they were going to get. So their expectations were one thing. They heard the headline, we're better off together, you know, blah, 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 blah then the reality was something different. A great way to tilt the odds in your favor is to develop a really clear future state vision, that picture of what the future looks like. You talked about it with your own firm and about your vision, your why. You have to start with that vision. What is, why are we here? What are we doing here? And get buy into that. I think it's essential to have 
key people in the organization play a role in defining that future state vision. And from that picture, you know, that's the destination. That's where the organization is going. And when you've got clarity around that, I think everything else follows. It informs priorities in the organization. It informs the way you engage with clients. So it's not a transaction. It's a meaningful relationship. And my view, my experience is when team members in the firm are able to complete a day at work and be able to say, I know why my work mattered. I was helping people achieve more joy in retirement, more freedom in retirement, more choices in retirement. They've had a successful day. I mean, you can't beat that. Yeah, there's so much just, even if you don't feel it every single day, there's this inherent just satisfaction that comes from that, right? That you did good, that there is meaning beyond, that your work is valuable and impactful, right? People drive by that. And it's a lot of the touchy-feely stuff. And I think that that's a tough thing within our industry, right? Is is that this is really touchy-feely. And everybody's like, well, we just, we got to make the numbers, right? And that's, that's kind of the driver. We're an analytical industry. We're analytical people that are in the industry and run the industry. And we're based on metrics and numbers. And, you know, we, we analyze investments and that's what we do with our firm. How do firms, how do you help firms get over that hump, right? Because it is so touchy-feely and if there is no direct ROI necessarily right away on it, that's so hard for leaders to, to, to kind of hang their hat on. Listen, I totally get the touchy-feely part of it, but here's the thing. We're human beings, and there is sort of the human element to everything we do. When you look at the numbers, every number on your P&L as a firm represents humans. It represents behavior. Look at the rise of behavioral finance and kind of what's going on there and how that plays out with clients. I mean, I think it's fascinating. A friend of mine is a professor teaching behavioral finance at Baylor. And just sort of the growth and the kind of interest in that is fascinating. But what we know from Gallup research and from from a lot of other studies is that firms that create emotional engagement with their team members right? That emotional engagement with their team members and with their clients are much more likely to see greater sustainable long-term growth. Why is that? When you feel that emotional connection, it's truly a relationship. There's meaning, there's pertinence. It comes down to that relevance. So I, I again, I can't stress it strongly enough. I understand the sort of the pushback a little bit saying, eh, this is getting a little bit too much into the emotional side. But the fact of the matter is the EQ is so much more important than the IQ when it comes to building and sustaining relevance and creating a successful firm in the long term. And I think that your point, again, it goes back to sustaining. We've talked about it time and time again in the podcast, right? It's it's the idea that you have to continuously reinvent your relevance. And yeah, and so I, I kind of want I wanted to see if you had any kind of examples or stories from your research regarding you know firms that built the relevance, maybe some that lost it, or maybe some that that kept it, and and that that we can maybe utilize as a guiding light for us as we all go through this idea of of leading from zero and building relevance in our firms. Well, the the firms that I've that I talk about in the book are both those that have earned it and those who have lost it. One of the things that I've observed about firms that lose relevance, 
nobody sets out to be less meaningful. <laughs> I don't think there's a company in history that said, our goal tomorrow is to be less meaningful to our customers than we were yesterday. But what happens is events take place and leaders either overlook them or misread them. And that leads them to double down on perhaps the wrong activities that create the wrong results and miss the need to reinvent themselves, right? So what I'm getting at is one of the topics that I like to talk about and that is kind of key to the book is disruption. So there are a couple of elements of disruption that I talk about. There is self-disruption and there is adaptive disruption. So self-disruption is this idea that you sort of expect that conditions are going to change. You understand that there's this dynamic environment. Things are always changing. And so you make the choice to preemptively, proactively disrupt your own business, reevaluate your model and say, how do I need to recreate this model so that I can sustain that relevance with my clients as they're changing, as the world is changing? Adaptive is you say, I start to see these sprouts coming up of something going on, not totally clear on everything it means yet, but now is the time where we're going to engage. In fact, we want to act before our cheese gets moved for us. So companies that are able to, to choose their path, you have a lot more choices when you preempt disruption. When you're sort of the reaction reactionary, you limit your choices. You know, it's so fun. It's interesting when I love the reference to who moved my cheese. I think that that is one of the best fables out there about leadership and, and change and evolution. And I think it's something that every every advisor should read because I think it's so relevant in our time today where we're being forced to to change. And, you know, I think that this idea about reactive and proactive, and I've talked about this a lot in my writings and, and in some of my videos is, you know, as an industry, we tend to be really reactive. We tend to react to our clients' emails. We and make and go make the changes, or invest the cash, or do a financial plan, or we react to their phone call, or we react that we have a meeting schedule with them, as opposed to being proactive and saying, "How can we start to go to them with questions uh, to start getting the conversation started, or go to them with some ideas that they may not be thinking about, but that we thought about without them initiating it?" And it's so much more difficult because we, I think that the challenge is, is that. We don't know where to start with that, right? And I think that you, know, you, you see all these things, I'd be like, yeah, it'd be cool to do that, but is it sustainable, right? Or I don't have the time to do that. I got all this other stuff to do. So when you think about you know, that type of kind of creating your own disruption, how, how can a firm, you know, how can they even start that, right? Like how do they even get started on that front? Because, you know, we are an industry that doesn't want to shake the rock, the boat. If it ain't broke, why fix it? So how can we how do can we instill that in our leaders to start thinking more about you know creating disruption proactively? Well, one of the things that I think helps a lot is looking at yourself the way others do. So not only your clients, not only your team members, but potential competitors, right? So if you think about those that are disrupting the industry from the outside in, they aren't burden with the baggage of history that says, this is the way we've always done it in this company. They have a completely fresh perspective. And so disruption really isn't intended to be disruption. It's saying, we just have a different way of looking at things. 
So for leaders and organizations, for advisors, I think it's so powerful to try and step out of your own shoes and hear from your clients, your prospects, even people who have left you. How did we show up? How did we come across to you? Not to be defensive, but just to do your best to hear it. I talk about this in the book, and there's there's a chapter actually called Seeing Yourself, Your Organization as Others See You. It's hard to do. I mean, you know, if you look at the research industry and how much is spent on employee opinion surveys, client uh, engagement surveys, and all that kind of stuff, yet we tend to dismiss some of what we hear, right? You get feedback and you go, yeah, but she was just unhappy when she came to us as a client, or he just, yeah, he didn't really know what he wanted, and he never communicated very well. Forget that. Try and see yourself the way a new entrant into the market would, and that's a great way to start to inform you on where there might be a need to change. The other thing that that goes along with this is to tap into new people that come into your firm when they're brand new to the firm. Now, typically that's gonna be a couple of months where there's fresh perspectives, but the, the metaphor that I have is my family and I moved across town. We moved to a two story home and it was a quiet neighborhood, a lot quieter than where we lived before. And so my wife and I had our bedroom was upstairs and we slept with the slider open. It was nice. It was beautiful. And and so when we first moved in, we moved in in April. You could hear birds singing and sounds. And I just felt like I was in this tropical jungle at night. It was great. I loved it. What I noticed was a couple of months into it, I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear the birds. I didn't hear the sounds outside. The same thing is true with new people that come into our organization. When they're fresh, they've got perspectives. And that's the time to say, hey, what are some of the things that we do here that don't make any sense to you? And to really hear what they have to say, because those new advisors that are coming in, those new associates, whatever the role is, they're coming with a different perspective and we can learn from that. So tap into that as much as you possibly can while they're still fresh and before they become just one of the team. Not that that's a bad thing. It's great having people one of the team, but you know, we start to become similar in our views and, and that's not good. I love that. I mean, that idea of the birds chirping, right? Like it's that example, just like, I mean, just spurred so many different, you know, visuals for me in, in our, in, in our whole world, right. In life and in business. And I, and I, I see that in our, in our businesses, right. You know, people tend to get into what we're doing and, and some of our businesses are growing really rapidly and very fortunate. And it's, it's not the same outside. And so people don't realize the challenges that others in the industry and how fortunate we are because it's just like, that's the way it is. Like, I'm always around it. Like, there is nothing else. And we don't take that time to step out and look at everything else. And I think that that's also where firms can learn is that go talk to some people in the startup community. Go talk to people in other industries and have them give you their perspectives of the of your industry right and you can learn something new you can think you can pick out a few pieces of how they do business that maybe would allow you to do it in our business a little bit differently and and it creates that innovation and i think that that's really really intriguing i i have one other question that i want to talk about from our prior conversations that i think you, you you allude to in the book as well and then i want to wrap it up but you know 
right now in the wealth management space, we're going through an, a really interesting time with, uh, with our industry. Over the next 10 years, let's just look at some of the stats here. There's going to be a major shift in wealth, right? Currently, baby boomers hold the majority of wealth and Gen X and millennials combined hold under 20%. Uh, while baby boomers hold about 50%. But by 2030, that shifts drastically. Baby boomers share will shift lower slightly. It'll go from 50 to 45%. And the combination of wealth between Gen X and millennials will skyrocket and overtake the percentage held by baby boomers. I think it'll be about 48% to 45%. That is an amazing shift of wealth in just you know nine years from now. So the wealth management industry is going to have to build a business to understand and work with multiple different generations in order to grow and stay relevant. What So with that in mind, with that as the foundation, what can advisory firms think about today to ensure, you know, from the disruption side and the relevant side, I think this brings everything together from your, from your research. You know, what can they do to think about to ensure they stay ahead of this trend and are well positioned as a firm 10 years from now? Well, let's start with anchoring in the principle of relevance, earning and sustaining relevance and what it means tomorrow in the business. And I like that you're thinking out 10 years. I did a study for the American Bankers Association that was called the changing face of wealth management. And the question that we asked was, who will the wealth client be in 2025? So we only looked at five years, but same principle. So who will the client be? What will they value? What will they expect of their advisors? And who will the advisors be? And what will they need in order to properly engage with the clients? And then finally, what will the engagement approach be? One of the headlines from the study is this whole thing of by 2025, we'll have five generations of wealth owners in the marketplace. Five. We really haven't had that before. So we'll have Gen Z that are really coming into their building business phase and creating wealth and still members of the silent generation and then kind of everything in between. Here's what's so remarkable about that as we answer the question, how do we earn relevance tomorrow? Every one of those demographics, and if you overlay cultural and gender differences, has different interests, views, values, perceptions, fears, concerns, behavioral finance dimensions. And so that tells us that our legacy approach to things like segmentation in the business, which used to be based on assets under management, just doesn't work anymore, right? We used to say somebody who's got a million dollars gets this. They've got 10, they get that, they get 25, they get whatever they want. The question that we have to answer is, how do we refine or even redefine our operating model? Things like business development, client service delivery, ongoing engagement to earn and sustain relevance to a segment of one. So we've got to kind of refine all of that. And it also comes back from my view into the seeing yourself as others see you. So the perspective that a Gen Z generational client may have of your firm may be dramatically different than their grandparents who may still be doing business with your firm. I'll give you one example. And and I'm sure you've seen the research on this, but take the, the ESG topic, right? If you don't talk to a millennial or Gen Z about your ESG options and how that can fit into their portfolio and how that can align with them fulfilling their financial goals, they won't take you seriously. You can't even have the conversation. 
yet their parents, their grandparents may be less interested. It's not that they don't care, but that's not going to be in their top three or four things. So it's so important for us to see ourselves the way others see us and challenge our own thinking. So if you're a style shop and you're used to saying, you know, this is our niche, it's an important time to step beyond that and say, our style has to be based on who the client is, not just the investment style. The, The last thing I'll mention on this topic is that we have to recognize that operating models have shelf lives, right? So if you made it this far through COVID and you have not changed your operating model in your firm, it's probably time to revisit it because operating models, business models weren't made to last forever. I think that that's just an interesting way. And, and as you think about you know having different strategies for different generations, it's uncomfortable for an advisor to think about, right? Like they, they, they've been doing business one way for so long because it's really, you had one kind of generation and, and it's, it's a change to the way that you have to think and it's going to be a challenge. But the ones that take it head on and think differently and have that kind of uh, intentional disruption to go about it and try new things. Some of them are going to work really well. Some of them are going to fail really badly. As long as you're not doing something that, you know, with their money, you're doing something with trying to how you communicate and interact and build this relationship. They're going to be open to that. I think that the younger generation understands that, hey, you're trying something new and some of it's going to work and some of it's not. And it's just definitely going to be uncomfortable for sure. And so I always wrap up every podcast with this question. I think it's an interesting, it's a question that I'm personally intrigued by and I'm selfish. I guess I'm allowed to be a little bit selfish in in, in the podcast, but it's a question around uh, that that I have with many advisors. I think you're going to bring a unique perspective to this. And the question is, is why is our industry going to be forced to change? The background of this question is that our industry really has been talking about firms needing to change for years. I mean, decades. I remember going, you know, early on in my, in my career, going to conferences and everybody was still talking about how the wealth transfer was going to take shape in the next five years and you had to make changes for it or how technologies were going to spur you that you, you're going to replace you. And But, you know, time and time again, this industry has proven that still be able to grow. I mean, we've had some of the fastest growth. I mean, the, the RA industry is managing over nearly $100 trillion and has seen nearly 50% growth in just five years uh, of their assets. It's growing. Businesses are growing. Margins, you know, profits are still there. Revenues are growing. And so everybody's like, I don't need to change. I don't need to adopt any of this stuff. So the root question is, is why is now the time advisors must change? And, you know, you know take it either from that perspective, Dave, or take it from the perspective of, you know, what are some examples of companies that that thought that same way? Hey, I never have to change and now we're gone, right? Or, or those that, that that did change. So from your perspective, why is an advisory firm going to have to change? Well, I think the most important stimulus for change is that business dynamic. Business is always in motion because life is always in motion. You don't always feel base level change, but it's there. And it's sort of like living on planet Earth, Right. At the equator, the planet's spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. But it doesn't feel like we're moving at 1,000 miles an hour. Now, when something extraordinary happens in the environment like COVID-19, we feel the acceleration of change because everybody is forced into it and we feel it. But it was going on even before that. So I think the point is that there's never a time when the world or business is standing still. Even though we get lulled into this concept of status quo, 
it's false. <laughs> there is no status quo. So it's not as much about being forced to change as it is recognizing the impact of change that's going on around us. It's happening whether or not we want to participate in it. So my comment is, why not choose to participate in it? Recognize that it's going to be dynamic. Yes, things are going great, but we have to continue to earn and sustain relevance. And if we want to test into that, just wait for the next correction and see how many people are not feeling that excited about things that are going on. It does happen. So that relevance has to continually be re-earned by us examining, going within, going within the firm and saying, what's next? Too often our industry changes when they're forced to change. Reactionary, again, goes to the, the, the ethos of this industry of how we've been for so long. And you know, I think that your point from the book about intentional disruption, it, that's just something that has, has stuck with me since our first conversation and since I've read about the book and read parts of the book. Intentional disruption, right? If you, you, you don't have to change, right? You don't have to change. You, you'll still probably have a firm. It'll probably be good. But will it be great and will it be the firm that you want it to be? If you want a lifestyle firm, maybe you don't change. If you want to grow and impact more lives and leave an impression, you know, beyond just, you know, one to two, one and one to one relationships, you may be forced to change. And so I think that that is the that is really the impetus of it. Right. And I think that why you, you're still going to be able to have a firm if you don't change. But is it going to be the best firm or the growth firm that you really want that you you strive that attracts the best people, both clients and employees from that standpoint? I think that I get that from our conversation. Dave, this yep. has been an amazing conversation. I, I Before we go, I want you to be able to tell everybody how they can find you, where they can get the book, how they can follow you to keep learning from all of your great insights going forward. Sure. Well, the book is on Amazon. And again, the book is Leading from Zero. And you can find me at... Dave, D-A-V-E, Kafaro, C-O-F-F-A-R-O.com. So there's information about the book and a bunch of other things. So please go to my website. We can connect on LinkedIn, whatever makes the most sense, but would love to hear from anyone who would like to discuss these topics further. Awesome. Dave, really, really enjoyed uh, the conversation and extremely grateful and appreciative that you took time out of your day to join us on Bridging the Gap. I learned a lot and I think everybody here listening has learned a lot as well. So thank you so much and uh, have a great rest of the day and enjoy the amazing weather out in, in Orange County. All right. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. They say-